0: good evening it's good to be with you tonight this night I'm going to begin a uh, different series a rather um, new sort of thing Uh, we're going to over the next uh, few months be going through Paul's letters but uh, as a rather a survey of Paul's letters with a particular focus on what Paul has to say about the church and how he instructs the churches uh, in their in the course of their life together And to introduce this series then, and this this survey of Paul's letters, we're going to look at the way in which Paul addresses his letters to those churches. I want to begin simply by um, pointing out to you something that's um, perhaps obvious on its face and maybe worth saying at the uh, outset in any case that when we think about the letters in the New Testament, um, we're dealing with real people, with real churches at a real time and in a real place in history. And I say that, and I I feel it's important to say that because of something I recall my father saying in a sermon um, once, uh, as he spoke about the time when he first came to Christ as an early Christian who had not really engaged with Scripture at all and not spent much time of his own reading God's Word, Um, uh, words like Corinthians and words like Thessalonians, seemed very ancient and distant and and, uh, abstract and he didn't know what to make of them. Uh, But he thought that uh, this was some rather um, abstract, systematic uh, theological writing that had nothing to do with real life. He had never imagined that these were simply letters to churches in a place and time. And um, of course he uh, came to understand that, but he felt it necessary to make that remark and I think it was valuable. Uh, Because these are, they do seem so foreign. And yet, I want you to appreciate the personal quality of these letters. This is personal correspondence from the Apostle Paul, intended for a broad community. Communities of people that he loves dearly. That he counts as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that that he's very concerned for. And uh, as he writes these letters... He calls these churches to order their lives in a particular way and he challenges them uh, to uh, to hold their faith more steadfastly and to order their uh, their life together as a church in a particular way and that's what our goal is as we go through these letters then is we want to seek to understand what it is that Paul would have the churches of Christ do what he instructed those early churches to do in uh, in scripture and then what is, what's the bearing of that upon our life together? Well, let me simply read uh, one of these greetings from Romans chapter 1. And we'll pray. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It's in your handout. And um, uh, it reads as this, uh, as follows. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to see what you have for us this evening as we look at these greetings to the churches and to individuals who labored and and served those churches, that we might. Glean truth from these uh, addresses that we might understand more surely and more clearly what your will is for us as a church, how we ought to order our lives together. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a question that I want to consider at the outset and it's going to take us to the book of Acts before we look at these letters and you'll find your place there in Acts chapter 8 and then we'll look at Acts chapter 9 and what I want to um, consider is a simple question um, but one perhaps you you may have thought about or maybe it's never crossed your mind why should we be concerned with Paul's words to the churches that is as he addresses ancient churches, we, want to, we wonder and we ask ourselves, what does this have to do with churches in the 21st century? I, I would suggest to you that it has a great deal to do with churches in the 21st century. But to answer that question, I want to first consider Paul's story. I want to give a survey of how Paul came to be an apostle and how he came to be uh, not just an apostle, but one who, um, who instructed so many churches in the Gentile uh among the Gentiles. Paul was an unlikely convert. You may recall in the early church that they uh, had called seven men whom they appointed as deacons. Seven men who were appointed to serve the physical needs of this growing church in Jerusalem. And Stephen was among them as one of the first deacons. He was a man who was endowed with, um, with great wisdom and power by the Holy Spirit. He worked signs and wonders and he uh, didn't just serve the needs of others, but he actually contended with others for the sake of Christ, promoting the gospel, seeking to convince others that Jesus is the Christ. And for that, Stephen ultimately became the first martyr in the early church. He was killed. And one of the men, in fact, the ringleader of the group of men who killed him was Saul, who we know as Paul. Uh, Saul, as we look at chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, in the very first verse, we find after Stephen's death that Saul approved of his execution. And from then forward arose a great persecution that scattered the church in Jerusalem into a wider region throughout Judea. But God had plans for Saul that were very different from this early uh, situation in his life. In chapter 9, then, if you turn over, we find that God planned to bring Saul to faith in Christ, and then having brought him to faith in Christ, his plan was to use Paul as a chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to establish churches in places that had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. So let me just read in chapter 9. Here we read, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has set me so that you may regain your sight. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Saul would go on from there to begin proclaiming Christ and to preach the gospel. And he would astound many as he had this 180 degree turn in his life. As one who was a persecutor of the church. Now was a part of the church. Who was proclaiming Jesus. And it's important that, I, that, that you get the sense of the, the, the big picture of what happened to Saul and also uh, to hear what God said concerning him that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In other places we find, for example, in Philippians 3 that Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he was uh, one of the great, uh, if you if you put his record as a, as a Jewish leader, up against anyone else's, his would be the best. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew his tribal lineage. He really uh, was zealous for the law of God. Apart from the fact that he was a persecutor of the church, simply judging by his adherence to the law, he was unmatched in his righteousness. But because he was a persecutor of the church, he came to regard himself, as he writes to Timothy, in First Timothy chapter one, as the chief of sinners. And 1 Corinthians 15, he says that he is uh, least of all the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle. Why? Because he was a persecutor of the church. He was uniquely called by God for a reason, he said to Timothy, to show God's grace so that as the chief of sinners, as the foremost of sinners, we might see in him an example of God's mercy, an example of God's grace, so that we might see how great God's grace is. Not just to Saul, but how great his grace is to us. We might not be people who say, well, I'm too far gone, I'm too evil, I'm too sinful. Paul became a unique example of God's grace to sinners. But he also became an important preacher of the doctrine of justification by faith. That we are not justified by any works that we do, anything that we merit on our own. But rather, we are declared to be righteous by God through faith. Because of Christ's merits. That in in coming to faith in Christ. God counts that or credits that to our account as righteousness. And he imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. And our sinfulness to Christ's account. A debt which he paid on the cross. Paul became an important preacher of that message. Because he had been one who was so zealous to earn his way. To earn his favor with God on account of his obedience to the law. And he had failed had turned in that turn to Christ 180 degrees in this regard as well. Became one who no longer sought to rely upon his own strength and his own discipline and his own, um, uh, own adherence to the law, but to rely fully and finally on the righteousness of Christ. So Paul was chosen as an instrument to go to the Gentiles with this particular message. He was a church planter. He was not someone who would stay in one place for a long time and 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 serve as a pastor but he would go from city to city and as a missionary proclaiming the gospel and planting churches we see this for example in Romans 15 verse 20 where Paul says this in Romans 15 verse 20 and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation Paul's goal was not to go into the places where Christ had already been preached. That is to uh, labor as uh, one who was constantly and consistently making and building up disciples. That's not an unworthy task. But it was someone else's calling and someone else's gifting. But Paul's calling was to go and plant churches and to proclaim Christ where Christ had not been named. And so Paul also wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he spoke about himself and another early Christian preacher named Apollos. He said this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul recognized his unique calling as one who was assigned to plant churches and to proclaim the gospel in new places. And he was recognized by others, including the Apostle Peter, for his remarkable wisdom, a wisdom that was a gift from God, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. He was also recognized by many in the early church in the first two centuries of the church for the same reason. Later leaders like Clement, a pastor in Rome, and Polycarp, another early pastor, when they interacted with some of the churches that Paul had planted and some of the other churches that Paul had ministered to, they directed those churches to go back to Paul's letters so that they might be built up in the faith that was once delivered to the saints for all time. So we see in Paul's story of an unlikely convert who was nevertheless chosen by God for this unique task of of, of being one of the, the, in fact, perhaps the the first great church planter, uh, one who founded so many churches, that is, planted so many churches not by his own strength, but by the grace God had given him, we see a portrait of a man who is uniquely qualified and uniquely called to, uh, to teach us what a church should be, what a church should look like, and how we ought to order our life together. You think about the situation here. As Paul is going into Gentile regions, by and large, he's proclaiming the gospel to people who have almost no background in the, uh, in, in the Jewish faith. Now he would go into synagogues and some of those people would have been uh, Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, and they would have known the scriptures and they would have had some background in that. But by and large, these are Gentiles coming into the church, coming into this new community, and they have almost no background in it. And Paul has to build them up from square one. He has to teach them what kind of life is going to be pleasing to God as they come together in the church. And he does that in his letters, as he calls upon them to to assimilate the teaching and the traditions that he and the other apostles handed down. We can learn a great deal from that as well then, though we are, I think, in our context, in our society, much more familiar with the scriptures than many of these early converts to Christ. Nevertheless, we are a great distance from uh, that time and that place. And sometimes, over the course of many years, what happens, what unfolds, is that Uh, we innovate and we change and we adapt our practices slowly but surely over the course of time until what we do in the context of church life is something that would be unrecognizable to the apostles and to the early church. And we want to think about that and ask ourselves, how can we regain that form of worship that the early churches practiced how can we order our lives in a way that is consistent with what we see in the scriptures I suggest to you that a way that we can do this is by doing the the very thing that we're going to do in the months ahead is by surveying Paul's letters and reflecting specifically on things that he says to the churches and how they ought to live their life together how they ought to think about the church as an as as a uh, organization as an institution in its own right and how they ought to think about other people in the church. How they ought to think about other churches that they might have opportunity to partner with. Or churches that they might pray for. And how they ought to structure their life together. What kind of order should there be in the church? These are many of the things that Paul will take up in the letters that we see. But well, what we're going to do tonight then is look at the greetings in his epistles. And I think if you've ever written a letter you know what it's like to agonize over the greetings and the, um, uh, the, the final byline. You uh, write a letter, and you get to the, the last line, and you say, well, do I say sincerely, or do I say best regards? or well, well, Maybe I'll just put a little hyphen there and write my name. And uh, if you've never agonized over that, then I, I envy you. But um, uh, it's, it can be agonizing. But it would really help you know, if we had a standard practice. When I worked for a corporation, there was a standard practice. It was everyone just wrote, best regards. Or uh, in the Navy, you always signed very respectfully if you were writing to a superior and uh, your name. And if you were writing to someone who is a subordinate, you just write respectfully. And um, that was easy. You didn't have to think much about it. Well, they had standard rubrics for writing letters in the Greco-Roman world as well. And you can see that to some extent reflected in Paul's addresses to the churches. But his also will differ. Uh, in a If you were to take up a letter that was written by just um, any ordinary person in the Greco-Roman world, he would state his name as Paul does, and then he would state whom he's sending the letter to. He might say to the, something like Luke writes in his gospel to the most excellent uh, Theophilus or something like that. And then usually there would be well wishes, well wishes of health, um, good health to you and, and, and good fortune and things like that. For Paul, it's quite different. If you look at the handout that I've given you with all of the greetings from Paul's letters, He is going to address people based upon a new reality that has come to pass because of their common relationship in Christ and their common faith in Christ. So just looking at that letter that he addressed to the church in Rome, you see that Paul introduces himself and he gives himself a particular title. It won't always be the same title in every letter, but he introduces himself in the letter to Rome as a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave or bondservant of Christ Jesus, you could say. But he recognizes and acknowledges that he has been called also to be an apostle, that he has been set apart for a peculiar work for the gospel of God. And then he goes on a rather lengthy digression, speaking about this glorious gospel and, and listing many things that we can say about that gospel. And then, when he comes down to verse 7, he, address, he, he states who he's addressing to all those in Rome. Again, he says something about them who are loved by God and called to be saints. Sends grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's as if Paul, ultimately, though he's sending this letter, is really sending a letter on God's behalf. Because here he sends not grace to you and peace from me, or from me and my companions and my fellow workers, but rather grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows and understands that what he's writing is god's word as the spirit inspires him and enables him to write scripture we've seen that in the letters of the thessalonians and the way that he taught them and called upon them to regard his writings and the way we can see that also affirmed by peter the way he affirms paul's letters as scripture breathed out by god but here uh, and so here we see that reflected in the greetings the way that paul sends on behalf of god the father and our lord jesus christ grace to you and peace so we see that Paul has adapted this common form of of uh, epistle writing from the Greco-Roman world but he has uh, brought to it a particularly Christian flavor a particularly new flavor as, as, uh, as um, is uh, appropriate and right given the new situation and the new relationships that have come to fruition in these churches what I want to do then as we look at these greetings is I want to really focus on that underlined portion in each of these um, letters. and I want to draw some observations from it and then see what we can see and, and, and observe what we can observe concerning Paul's attitude uh, about the church, what he says and affirms concerning the church, concerning gathered Christians. So let me simply read that underlined portion in each of these letters, starting with, again with the letter to the church in Rome. He addresses this first letter to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look down then and we see the letter to the church in Corinth. Here he addresses it to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours again in a second letter to that same church in Corinth he says to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the Saints who are in the whole of Achaia looking down to the church and churches in Galatia he simply says to the churches in Galatia of Galatia not much to say there Uh, we'll return to that and uh, consider why that might be and then to Ephesus to the Saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus to Philippi, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, to the church in Colossae, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, to the church in Thessalonica, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and once more in a second letter to them, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn over on the page, you see that Paul also wrote, personal correspondence. To Timothy, he wrote two letters, addressing him as my true child in the faith, and again as my beloved child. To Titus, he wrote similarly, addressing him as my true child in a common faith. And then to Philemon, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Phia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier in the church in your house. When we reflect on those greetings, there are several things that I want to observe. I want to observe, first of all, that Paul addressed people that he considered to be a holy people. People who were saints, who were loved by God. We saw that right off the bat in Romans 1-7, as he addressed the church in Rome as those who are loved by God and called to be saints. But in no fewer than six of the letters, Paul specifically identifies his addressees as saints, And that word saints means holy ones. People who are set apart. Paul recognized that the churches were gatherings of people whom God had sanctified. You see that word sanctified twice there in his letters to the Corinthians as well. Paul understood that God had set these people apart. He had called them, just as he had set Paul apart for a particular mission, he had set these people apart to find a new identity as part of a new people in the church. And it was a holy calling. It was, in fact, a sign of God's love that he should set them apart and set his affection upon them in this way. And so, over and over again, he refers to the people who inhabit these churches as saints. A second observation which I want to draw to your attention is that these gatherings of Christians... Were geographically located churches that were regionally connected look at the 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1 Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia and then look at Galatians and see that Paul addresses this to the churches of Galatia. On the back of that sheet that I've given you, I put a map. And there you can see a picture of uh, this portion of the world where Paul was uh, spending much of his time laboring. And he traveled. And you can see the churches, the cities where these churches were. You can see in what's modern-day Turkey and, and then would have been called Asia or Asia Minor. You can see Colossae inland a bit. And you can see Ephesus near the coast. If you look over to Macedonia, you see Philippi and Thessalonica, and down south, uh, near near where Athens would be, you see Corinth. And there you can see then that region is broadly Achaia. And if you look over just to, uh, to Colossae back in Turkey, and you look just a little bit east of that, you see Galatia. So Galatians was a letter that was addressed to several churches, a few churches that Paul, most of which encountered and planted during his first missionary journey. And uh, these were in the region of Galatia. And then when he writes 2 Corinthians, he addresses it to the church in Corinth, but also to other churches that are with them in Achaia. And I uh, will come back to why these things are significant, but I want to simply draw these observations to start with. He's addressing geographically located churches, churches that are local to a city, gatherings of Christians that are within a particular uh, place and yet are connected regionally with other churches who are close to them. And even in Philemon, on this back page, and in Paul's letter to Philemon, we see that there's a church that gathers in this man's house. We see an even narrower um, uh, geographical location within a particular man's house where they gather and have their regular place of worship. But we also see, if you look, uh, uh, we look at 1 Corinthians, that Paul addresses a church that is not merely connected regionally, but is also connected widely with all the churches in every place through a common union with Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. He addresses the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, Called to be saints, and listen to this, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. There's a common faith. There's a common Lord Jesus Christ. There's a common way of life of calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together with people all across the world. Corinth is united, the church in Corinth is united with that church, Paul would have them know, that universal church, through their union with Christ Jesus, which is signified by that phrase, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. In fact, in his addresses to these churches, we see this idea of union with Christ over and over again. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, there in that greeting to the church in Philippi, to all the saints, In Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. In 1 Thessalonians, we've seen in previous weeks, as we've studied those two letters, that Paul, as he writes, he writes to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These, These words, in God and in Christ, recognize a crucial part of Paul's teaching, that he taught that we have been united with christ now this is not a thing that you feel it's not some kind of mystical thing where you feel some kind of connection with him it's something that we know to be true because scripture tells us that it's true but we know it to be true and it's important to know that we are united with christ because of all of the consequences of our union with christ because we have been united with christ we share in all the saving benefits of his death and resurrection paul would say to the church in colossi in colossians chapter 3 that you have died and your life is hidden with god in christ when christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory and you see there in a nutshell the idea of being united with christ so that his death is our death his life in heaven is our life and when he comes again we will be transformed gloriously into his likeness by virtue of this fact that through the holy spirit indwelling us we have been united with our lord and savior jesus christ and that reality means that we have all every christian everywhere in every place at every time has all we've all been united with one lord and through that we can recognize that we together as one church of god are united every person who calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, in every place. That is the idea that is expressed in those, um, in those addresses. Paul understands that the church is in a union with Christ. This is part of why, when, if you remember from Acts 15, when, when Jesus confronted Paul, he said, Why are you persecuting me? And Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 15, I was a persecutor of the church. And you would say, which is it, Paul? Were you persecuting the church or Jesus? And the answer is yes. Why was he persecuting Jesus? Because he was persecuting the church, the church that is in union with her Lord. Paul. That's why Paul counted himself to be the chief of sinners. We also notice that Paul addressed individuals as faithful brothers, as true children, as fellow soldiers and fellow workmen. That there was a kinship that Paul acknowledged and also a fellowship in the labor in which they were engaged. We see that, for example, the way he speaks about Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians as he sends this letter to the Corinthians with Sosthenes as a, as a co-writer. We don't know much about this man, really anything, except he's here, a co-author, a co-sender with Paul. But he refers to Sosthenes as our brother. And The same thing is true in 2 Corinthians of Timothy, as he sends this letter with Timothy, our brother. He'll refer to Timothy also as my true child, we saw in First and Second Timothy, my beloved child. And likewise, as he sends his letter to Philemon, he says the same thing about Timothy being our brother. In that letter to Philemon, he'll refer to Aphia as our sister. Archippus is our fellow soldier. And Philemon is a fellow worker. These people he regards both as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In some cases as his own children in the faith and all together as fellow workers and fellow laborers. You see that there's not a hierarchy here in the sense that Paul doesn't lord his apostleship over them. Paul regards them in the, in the closest of terms and he enjoys this fellowship with people like Sosthenes and Timothy, Titus likewise, and Aphia, and many others. He can write as he writes to... Um, uh, it, to the Galatians as he sends this letter, you see in verse 2 that he doesn't send alone but all the brothers who are with me. It just becomes the common coin, the common language, the way he speaks about other Christians. their are brothers. their are sisters in Christ. Again, to the Colossians, he refers to Timothy as our brother. And so you see over and over again in these letters the affection that Paul has with, for these early Christians. People whom, at one point in his life, He would have dragged back to Jerusalem to be killed or to be thrown in prison. But now he counts counts them as dear to him as anyone could count anyone. And finally, we see that Paul acknowledges a structure in the church. He acknowledges, this is particularly true, you see in Philippians 1, that Paul doesn't just write to the church in Philippi, but he makes a particular note of the overseers and the deacons. The overseers would have been the elders some we uh, elders overseers pastors it's one office different terms used and applied to speak of one office the word overseer is what we get our word bishop from but we ought not to think that this is some greater level of hierarchy that the, these are bishops who read, lead a region of churches no these overseers are Elders, their pastors, their shepherds of these congregations. And along with them are the deacons who serve the physical needs of the church. And so Paul, right uh, already in, in his letter to the Philippians, acknowledges that these structures and these, or, this organization of officers exists within the church. We'll have a lot of time later on in our study to think about that and how we ought to apply it in our own life together. But I simply leave that observation there with you. Now let me step back again then and reflect upon what we can learn from these various observations. We can start by asking a question, how should we think of the church? How should we think of this organization of which we are part? If you were to go down the street and ask a random person and ask them, what do you think the church is? You might get a variety of questions. Someone might say, well, it's an institution uh, if they've come from a Catholic background, they think it's an institution that is based in Rome and very hierarchical. But they don't necessarily consider themselves to be a significant part of that institution. Someone else might say, well, the church is a building. Ah, well, you walk down the, the, the street in Coloma and you, run, you walk by a number of church buildings and say, look at all these churches. But the word here, church, actually translates a term that means Assembly. Or gathering the is people we had a nursery rhyme when i was a kid you would take your hands and you would fold them and you'd say here is the church and here is the steeple and you open the doors and you see all the people but the misnomer of course is that this is not the church if it represents the building but the people that you see inside that is what represents the church and you can see that reflected in paul's addresses to these people he's not writing to a building He's not writing a formal letter to a government or an institution. He's writing a letter to people whom he can call saints and brothers, fellow workers, people he loves, people he cherishes, people he cares deeply for. We ought to think the same way about the church. I preached uh, my, uh, the, the, the sermon at my brother's wedding recently and I spoke a great deal about how marriage was given by God to be a picture of The relationship between Christ and the church. It was given initially to foreshadow that as a mystery. But then in the fulfillment uh, of these things we come to see how significant the church is. And we actually sang about that this evening as we sang uh, uh, um, the sands of time are sinking. And how um, the church is the bride of Christ and that she will be glorious. We will corporately be glorious as we are given to Christ as a bride and yet our attention will not be fixed in gaze upon our glory but rather on the bridegroom's face. You remember those lines from that hymn that we sung. Well, in the same way that uh, we're taught, this is in fact in Ephesians chapter 5, that the church is the bride of Christ and I had the opportunity to tell my brother and his wife that they had the privilege to be a picture of Christ and the church together corporately. afterward i talked to my brother and he just reflected on the fact that the things that i said were were great and and helpful but for many in the audience who weren't part of a church they might not have made any sense because they were thinking about the church as a building or as an institution well what does that mean to say that uh the bride is supposed to be a picture of that we have that misunderstanding and we need to disabuse ourselves of that misunderstanding and understand the church is an assembly of people the church is a holy people We've seen. A people that God loves, people that God loves so deeply that the Father would betroth the church as if it were as though it's a bride, and it is the bride of Christ, to be the bride of His Son. He loved the church and He sanctified the church by the Spirit. So when we reflect on that truth, we ought to ask ourselves. How do we think about the church? How do we think about our church? How do we think about other churches? How do we speak about the church? Ours or others? How do we speak about people in the church? Do we ridicule? Do we uh, get frustrated and angry? Do we say, I'll never be a part of that group of hypocrites? And deride the church? I don't have time for them? Or, I like my church now, but those other churches are no good? People for whom Christ died? people who will be part of the bride of Christ or do we speak the way that Paul speaks about them with a love with an affection with a jealousy for the purity of the church to guard the church in its doctrine and its practice if we like Paul understand that the church is a holy people that we are Saints set apart by God not wholly because we're so good and righteous but wholly because the Spirit of God has set us apart and is Fashioning us in the image of Christ, and we ought to speak about God's people in our church and elsewhere, and think about them in this light and in this regard. And it should color the way that we speak. It doesn't mean that we never have opportunity or never there's never a right situation to say, criticize or challenge someone in the church. But that needs to be done in love, with a desire to see that that person grow in Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness, not out of anger and hatred. We also see that, uh, and, and can reflect on the fact that the church is a local body of believers, but it is not an isolated body of believers. On the one side, that means that we need to value the local church in our lives. Now, you're all here. I feel like in some sense I'm preaching to the choir. But we all do go through times in our lives where we say, well, I don't think I need the church in my life. I, I have a deep uh, sense of spirituality. I, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God, but I'll just do my own thing on my own, my own time, in my own way. I don't really need to bother with the church. And I wonder and I ask, Is can you ever find a situation in Scripture where Paul or any other uh, sender of letters in Scripture writes a letter to individuals who have nothing to do with the church? I, they write letters to individuals, but those people are part of churches. They're leading churches. They're housing churches in their own homes. Paul writes letters to uh, the, these, uh, um, several letters to these seven churches. Does he ever address people who say, I don't have time to be a part of this group? No. The people of God, in Paul's view, if you were to go back and talk with Paul and sit down with him and say, we've got a real problem in this day and age in our time in the 21st century. We've got a lot of Christians who don't go to church, who aren't part of a church. Paul would look at you and say, what are you talking about? Christians who aren't part of the body of Christ that doesn't make any sense but we do have that problem in our day and it's a, it would be a confusing one to the early Christians and it should be confusing to us it should be unthinkable to us it's true that sometimes people in churches hurt other people but that's not new we'll look through these letters and we'll see that it's a common theme in Paul's letters Paul doesn't ever say, you know what, maybe you ought to move to another town or go shopping for another church. He calls them to be reconciled. He calls them to forgive one another. He calls them to to rebuke as necessary, to challenge one another to get along. And they had those things going on. You can see it in Philippians, and you can see it in, in in the first letter to the church in Corinth especially. Paul doesn't ever tell them, well, leave the church or maybe go start a new one, or maybe find one where you're feeling more accepted. Now we are not to be people who isolate ourselves from local churches. We ought to think about the church the way that we would think about a family. If there's conflict in the family, we want to seek to be reconciled with our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our children. It may not always be possible, but that should be our desire and our aim. What about a broader sense of the church? We see, particularly in the 2 Corinthians and in Galatians, that Paul addresses churches in a region which assumes that these churches are, in some way, regionally connected. We saw that in Thessalonians as well, as all the other churches in, in the region have, had heard, in Macedonia, had heard of the faith and the love and the steadfastness of the Thessalonian Christians. And Paul told them to, uh, Paul expected some of these churches and, and, and actually wrote it in his in his letters that they were to, once having read his letter, then to, uh, to copy it and to send it on to the other churches that they might read and benefit from it as well. And we can see that that practice happened quite often in the early church. These were churches that were connected, not isolated from one another. In our day and age, oftentimes churches like ours that assert our independence, as I think is right, sometimes mistake thinking that independence means we must be disconnected. From other churches, not partnering with them, not joining with them in, in, in worship and in, in partnership to further the gospel. And nothing is further from the truth. Nothing is further from the picture that we see in the New Testament. Simply demonstrated to us in the way in which Paul addresses these churches and has this assumption and this expectation that they are regionally connected. We ought to be regionally connected with those faithful, gospel centered churches in our region as well, in so much as is possible so much as we are able what about the universality of the church the fact that the church is one universal church gathered or not gathered now but a church that will be gathered on the day of Christ's return gathered around his throne gathered as his bride gathered as one people one congregation that will stand as a righteous congregation on the day of judgment as we read at the end of Psalm 1 how can we reflect upon this truth well, we ought to look forward to that day. We also should be prompted to uh, to, to, to seek to further the gospel in our in our world and um, beyond our region through the work of missions as we engage into what, whatever um, ability that God gives us as a church to do that, so that we might further the gospel and see that uh, that the church continues to grow. We also ought to think about churches as we in the mornings during the pastoral prayer, pray for churches in places where we don't know anybody. We've never met anybody. But we hear reports and we know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who call upon the same Lord as we call upon, who are our brothers and sisters. We will see them in glory one day, though we do not presently live with, in, in connection with them now. And we can pray for them. We recognize that uh, that kinship that we share with them so we seek their good in whatever way that we are able as we look forward to that day I think that's a right application of this truth that we are one church united in Christ even if we are many separate local churches finally the church is a body of individuals who are united in one faith and we saw that expressed especially in the way that Paul addressed individuals in these letters As he addressed them as fellow workers and brothers and sisters and and, uh, children, true children and beloved children. Especially what he said to Titus. My true child in a common faith. We see that what Paul is expressing is that there is something that indeed unites us as the one church of Christ. Separate in many places. And it's that common faith in our common Lord. And so we need to think about what are those things that bind us together and prize those things and defend those things at all costs. That one confession that binds us. We'll look at this in later weeks, but when Paul wrote to the Galatians, you see that he simply addresses the churches of Galatia. And yet in that greeting, there's a lot more that he says about the gospel and about Jesus Christ saying, uh, speaking of Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead and sending grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of god our father to whom be the glory forever and ever amen and in romans paul had a great deal to say about the uh the same thing the the, the main truths of the christian faith these essential truths and you wonder why well in galatia especially people were losing these things they were abandoning those things to pursue a false gospel. And Romans takes up many of the same themes as, uh, the, the, um, as uh, Jewish Christians were returning to Rome after they had been exiled for many years by the emperor Claudius. And now they're going to reunite with Gentile Christians in a church that had largely had no Jewish influence for a long time. How are they going to live together? Paul brings them back to the central truths of the gospel that we believe. These are the things that we must prize when we think about our faith, that we believe, the things that bind us together, the gospel of Jesus Christ, our belief in the truth of God's word, and many of the great doctrines that we hold dear. But we also need to recognize that there are areas where churches will disagree, that are not on that top level, that should not separate us. We will find someday that someone was, well... Some were wrong, and maybe some were right, depending on the nature of the debate. Nevertheless, we will find that out as we are united together before our Lord. So we need to also learn how to subordinate those areas of disagreement that may be very important, but ought not to separate us from one another. There are things that, a helpful way to think about that is a theological triage. You have first order issues. Things like the gospel and the truth of God's word. And those ought, not, those ought to divide Christian from unbeliever. But then there are second order issues that may divide denominations. Can you baptize children or not? Babies or not? Well, that's going to divide denominations, how you answer that question. But it doesn't mean that we can't partner together in the work of the gospel. And a third issue then is uh, th- th- those things that are usually, really matters of preference. What style of worship should we have? We have preferences. There are things that we do in a particular place. But if push comes to shove, I'm not going to separate with my brother in Christ because he likes a different kind of instrumentation than I do. Those are things that we ought to reflect upon and consider as we think about Paul's greetings and as we look to the weeks ahead. Well, let me give you a brief preview then as we think about these things, the plan for the months ahead. As I said, we're going to survey all of Paul's letters We're going to seek to discern a major lesson from each letter for the church. We're going to apply those lessons then to our life together. In some ways, we may be called to change. In other ways, we will be affirmed to continue doing what we are doing and to do it all the more. We're going to ask how should we think individually and as a congregation? How should we relate to other Christians inside and outside our church? How should we be ordered? What structure should we have? What should we do when we gather? What should we not do? What's a good idea? What's not allowed? And what is maybe something that we simply shouldn't do because it's not, uh, there's no pattern established for us in Scripture? What should we do when we are apart? Those are questions that we need to ask, and I think that we will find clear answers as we go through Paul's letters. Well, let me conclude there and, and just uh, encourage uh, uh, you as you go forth and as you think about how can I prepare for the study ahead One way that you can prepare is by each week, as each week passes, spending some time reading through the entire letter that we're going to deal with in the coming Sunday evening. We're going to go in the order that they're found in in your Bibles. So the very first one will be Romans. We're not going to look at every text in Romans. Just a few select. In fact, we're just going to look at Romans 16. But I commend to you the whole letter. And I'll make reference to themes that you see in the whole letter as you look at Romans 16. So take some time this week and uh, on an afternoon or uh, over the course of several mornings, just read through all of Romans. And make it your plan to do that week by week successively as we go through this study together. First Corinthians and then Second Corinthians. And uh, graciously unfortunately, fortunately after that they'll get shorter. But uh, let me commend that to you as we go through this study together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would form us and fashion us in the image of Christ, Lord together corporately that you would prepare us for that great day when we will be presented together with all who in every place and at every time have called upon your name together as one gathered congregation as the bride of Christ Lord we have no idea what that will look like it's unimaginable and yet it's a beautiful thought which is I'm sure more glorious than we can even comprehend And yet it won't be our glory that we are taken up with, so concerned with on that day, we know, as we've sung. It will be the glory of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Even now, as we look forward to that day, Lord, we pray that you would make the reality of our union with him evident in our life together and our lives individually, that we might demonstrate the reality of our union with Christ in Christ-likeness, with all humility and service and love and steadfastness and faith. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.